Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 132, Defying the Odds. Last time, as Operation Barbarossa began to unravel, in large part due to Krupp's inferior panzers, Mueller's oversized but inadequate elephants, and Hitler's mismanagement of his resources, Alfred Krupp, now the official cannon king, dispensed with formality and had vanquished foreigners' equipment and foreign civilians, along with POWs, brought to Germany as slave labor for the Third Reich, all against international law. Many of those poor souls were sent directly to Essen, for there were many Krupp factories there. Also, as far as back as 1941, under Alfred's orders, French, Dutch, and Belgian soldiers began to arrive at Krupp's shipyards at Kiel in northern Germany. The men were dressed in striped prisoner clothes and put to work. The manager there, Alfred Schroeder, immediately began to complain, as this was clearly against the law. When his memos did no good, he traveled to Essen personally to take up the issue with Alfred. Alfred's cold, almost mocking reply was, You come to see us on all these problems. We will show you how we do it. And with that, Alfred took his manager on a tour of Essen, showing him thousands upon thousands of foreign laborers who were already toiling for the works. Alfred then turned to his man and told him, By all means, take care of those men. But they were going to stay in Kiel. They were going to work for Krupp. And they were going to work hard. Alfred finished with, This issue will not be brought up again. As covered, Alfred was flaunting international law so that Germany would win the war. He was contributing the only way he could. As he had attached himself and his company's fate to the Fuhrer, there was no other course to his way of thinking. And there were others also so motivated. Field Marshal Wilhelm Keitel, Chief of the Armed Forces High Command, in trying to stave off the growing disaster that was the Eastern Front, backed Krupp. The objections arise from the military concept of chivalrous warfare. This war is for the destruction of an ideology. Therefore, I approve and back the measures. As this had been written out by the field marshal, and signed, it would be documents like this that got Keitel hanged. Now, it must be made clear that, though Krupp and many other Nazis were breaking international law, it was how they went about it that led to some of them to dangle at the end of a rope after Nuremberg. They did not have to work the prisoners so hard. They did not have to starve them to death. They did not have to make their working conditions such that death was the final result. Those decisions were purposefully made. And to be equally clear, Alfred knew of the details of his camps, for he was told constantly by Krupp doctors, assigned to keep these men and women alive, if not healthy, to continue the work. In fact, his own family physician, Dr. Weil, wrote to Alfred in mid-December of 1942, stating that one corpse, after examination, had not died from any organic ailment, but simple starvation 
The man had no fat tissue left on his body. Another doctor, Dr. Wilhelm Jager, wrote to Alfred after inspecting several Krupp camps. The diet was entirely inadequate. Only bad meat, which had been rejected by veterinarians as infected, was passed out in these camps. Clothing was inadequate. Many had to walk to work barefoot, even in the winter. He ended by saying that tuberculosis was four times greater than normal. And because many of these documents were captured by Allied soldiers, Alfred rarely bothered to refute them at Nuremberg. The best he could offer was to say that when letters such as these were sent to him, he would send them on to an underling. Did he think something would be done, that matters would change? It's highly doubtful. Which brings us to Edwald Lozer, Krupp's executive. According to his testimony after the war, he and Alfred went round and round about the slave labor. Before this, earlier in the war, Lozer would complain to Gustav, yet it did no good with either one of them. But for Lozer, it wouldn't matter what he said or supposedly said, that he wrote down his complaints, that he established contact with the American OSS, for his signature was on many of those forms concerning the slaves. Still, Lozer fought back at Nuremberg. He told the tribunal that as of April 1, 1943, when Alfred became the sole owner of Krupps of Essen, he, Lozer, was only serving its owner, like everyone else, to which the Allied judges reminded him that as an exceptional administrator, he did not have to work for Krupp. He could have gone almost anywhere in Germany. Further, he didn't have to stay when Alfred started bringing in slave labor. And that would be Lozer's downfall. But more of this later. But arguing with Alfred about tens of thousands of foreign workers, now slave labor, could only, in the worst case, get him fired. And indeed, Lozer would not be employed by Krupp for much longer. But the administrator was doing more than arguing about international law. He was also assisting in the downfall of Hitler's regime. As early as 1937, when Lozer first joined Krupps and saw what Hitler had in mind, with Essen's help, he joined a secret organization called the Small Circle. Their goal was to get rid of Hitler. Yes, he, Hitler, had gone too far with his nationalistic cause, and no, he wasn't the right sort to be worthy of running the country, and yes, though he did bring about several diplomatic coups, his path was obviously going to lead to war, something the conservatives were against. Making money out of de Fuhrer's rhetoric was one thing. Actually planning to put it all on the line with another general European war was something completely different. To be sure, there were many others besides those of the small circle. One of Lozer's former colleagues visited many Western powers and directly told them that Hitler meant to settle Europe by war when he was ready. This same man also went to London in the summer of 1939 and told the British that Poland would be invaded before the end of the year. Later, he told Belgium that they would also be attacked. 
not that any of his warnings helped those countries. By 1942, Germany was running the table. And with Germany doing so well, the conspirators were downhearted. Not only was he doing well and popular, but that success would, they believed, one day cause him to overreach. In fact, he may have already done so with Russia. As such, it was time to become more active. In early 1942, the conservative elements against Hitler formalized. It was only a few months later that Lozer established contact with Alan Dulles of the OSS. And perhaps feeling that he was actually doing something, Lozer would quit Krupp's just before Alfred officially took over in April of 43. Alfred had already really been running things, and as such, Lozer had been complaining to him about the slave labor issue. But more than that, the small circle had begun an unofficial shadow government, should anything befall Hitler. Of course, the circle's next item on the agenda was to make that happen. If and when they succeeded, Lozer would become the Minister of Finance. Such was his reputation in Germany. However, either the small circle and their allies were cursed from the outset, or Hitler was being protected by Ares, the god of war. During the first six months that Lozer was out of Krupp's, the first six months of Alfred being officially the Cannon King, the small circle, directly or indirectly, made six attempts on Defira's life. But each one failed, whether from schedule changes to Hitler's instincts, the most famous one being Valkyrie, or the July 20th plot. Still, it was heartbreaking for the circle, and the successive failures aged and added an edge to Lozer. With the loss of the 6th Army under General Paulus at Stalingrad, he was taken into Soviet custody on January 31, 1943. What was left of his army surrendered two days later. The small circle and the other conservative rebels were given new life, in the form of Lieutenant Colonel Klaus Scheck Graf von Staffenberg. Injured in North Africa, the zealot Staffenberg brought decisiveness to the cause. Now, those who were once powerful, having lost that influence to the Nazi elites, could one day see their goals as a real possibility. Hitler would be removed, a new government set up, the Nazis brought back under control, and peace would be made with the West, which would allow these new allies to push back the Soviets. But equally important, that this new Germany would be allowed to keep the vast territory it had conquered. Madness, of course. But compared to Germany losing everything under Hitler, it was too tempting a fantasy to ignore. Though Alfred was made the head Krupp in April of 43, the official acknowledgement by Berlin was not held until December 15th of that year with all the pomp and ceremony the Nazis were known for. Bertha Krupp announced her relinquishment of said ownership and power, and Alfred, standing right beside her, calmly picked it up with the understated words, I am in agreement with the above declaration by my mother, and I take over the ownership of the family undertaking. 
and as Hitler had survived Valkyrie in July 44, he and those still loyal dug in their heels for the duration. Alfred loyally followed suit. For the Nazi leader, his last days would be spent 50 feet below the old Chancellery's garden in the Fuhrer bunker. Alfred would make his, though not last, stand in a vastly more elaborate bunker below Villa Hugel. To get to it, and Alfred would spend more and more time there as the Allied bombing campaign increased, he would enter through a concealed door from his library, pass a swimming pool, and begin the descent of the 120 stairs. When each bombardment was over, each one being met by Krupp's 100,000 flak force, managing their Krupp 88s, Alfred would ascend the stairs and drive himself to his office in his black BMW sports car. There, as his staff cleaned up the mess, the Canning King would receive reports of the latest damage and go back to ordering that captured equipment and workers be sent to Essen. When the Allied bombers came in the evening, Alfred would sometimes go outside to the gardens to watch the show. Of course, this meant whomever his dinner guests were that night had to go out with him, and they couldn't leave until he did. Perhaps Alfred was daring fate, not unlike Churchill, during the Battle of Britain. As for the Krupanier, they had no such protection from the bombs, so Berta and later Alfred would invite them in to live in the Great House, or Alfred's Klein or small house nearby. And being Germans, each raid was recorded, the damage done and facilities now unusable. Another column would show how long it took to get said facilities back up and running. The weapons going to Hitler must never stop. That was until the night of October 23-24 of 1943. That night, the RAF dropped 4,522 tons of bombs on Essen. This resulted in the loss of eight armor plate mills, seven machine shops, six foundries, and various gun mount shops. Krupp's accountants put away their books. There wasn't enough pens, paper, or time to record such destruction. In the coming months, Goebbels and others would be writing in their diaries of Krupp's falling 80% in their production, and after certain raids, temporarily 100%. The last raid brought about 100% stoppage of production in the Krupp works. Speer himself is much concerned and worried about it. After such raids, the building experts of the Staatenborhen calculate that it will take 12 years to repair the damage. But the Third Reich didn't have that long. In Berlin's estimation, Krupp of Essen was now equal to the Eastern Front. A position must be held as long as possible. That's all they had left. It must be said that the RAF for the bombing of Essen was solely a British affair, targeted German civilian populations after the factories were laid low but not out of a desire for revenge. Simply, the fewer Germans there were, the fewer could be used to repair, 
and then once again begin to build the weapons of war. The bombing statistics gathered by the British and given over to the Americans so they could produce the U.S. Strategic Bombing Survey, a report of the effectiveness of said bombing, concluded 24%, nearly one-fourth the total tonnage dropped, and almost twice the weight of bombs launched against all manufacturing targets together, was dropped in attacks against large cities. In sheer destructiveness, these raids far outstripped all other forms of attack. And yet, though author Bomber Harris, Marshal of the Royal Air Force, admitted that the bombing was done with a view of breaking German morale, it failed completely. For one, the morale bombing was completely ineffective against so well-organized a police state as Germany. And two, the production numbers of those that survived the destruction actually rose. Yes, the works would come to a halt after a particularly bad raid, but the Krumpenier were always back at work the next morning. Hitler had told Speer, Give me 600 tanks a month, and we will abolish every enemy in the world. The General Stab echoed the Fuhrer. 600 tanks a month. 600 was the magic figure. By the end of 1943, Germany was producing... 1,000 tanks a month. By November of 44, when the Allies had already made their first breach of German soil, Germany was producing 1,800 tanks a month. Of course, there weren't enough men to operate them. But the game was not over. Not yet. Not for Hitler, or for Alfred, or for his Krumpenier. <laughs> 